And then he comes in and saves her. And that is a way that Martina Mayo surprises you. She tricks you, right? It's a, right. It's a she pays off the experience of knowing Ani's going to die, seeing a moment where Ani almost dies, but doesn't. It becomes a genuine surprise. and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We could not be more thrilled to be back for, drumroll, season six, everybody. <laughs> season six, we are back. We got another great season lined up, but we're getting ready for you. And boy, it's just, it's just good to be back. We had a little bit of a break. We were, uh, you know, getting getting our our distanced family Christmases all in order in the holiday season. Zoom and family <laughs> gatherings are just, an experience. There's going to be a trove of plays about oh, Zoom yeah. family get-togethers for years to come. And, Absolutely. Uh, we will probably talk about them on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. It is a unifying human experience that many of us are going through right now. So, uh, but but glad to glad to uh, be back after having kind of rested and recuperate a little bit. I slept a little more in between semesters, and uh, I'm excited to get to jump in and, and have more great conversations about theater's best scripts. That's right. And we are continuing the new pattern that we've established for beginnings of seasons. You know, for a while we discussed Linotage scripts, which is a great privilege, but we've kind of pivoted into discussing recent Pulitzer scripts. That that trove is only so limited, right? Because they only put out one a year. So <laughs> Right, so uh, we'll find something the, new at some the, point. The 2020 Pulitzer winner will be an upcoming first episode of the season in the next couple seasons. I, we don't know exactly when, but uh, we we're actually weirdly not able to get that that script yet. It is yeah. not publicly available because the play is so new. So instead, we are going back to 2018 for the beginning of this season and discussing the Pulitzer Prize winner, Cost of Living by Martina Mayoke. Yes, cost of living. It's it's. A, uh, I'm excited to get to talk about. It. I got this play uh, as a Christmas present. I think the year that it won the Pulitzer or something like that. So I'm excited to get to dig into it at long last after all these years. Yeah, and it's it's a great script to open a season with. It's really powerful, really interesting in, in the way it tells two different stories that kind of converge. We'll get into all that, of course. But before we do that, it's time to talk about Patreon. And it's time for us to announce something that is just so exciting. It, yeah. it happened early last season, and we've been saving the announcement for this, the first episode of season Season six, and you'll understand why when we announce this is the announcement of a new supporter, uh, a new patron over on Patreon. Well, not new, as we said, it happened early last season, but new to you all, new to hear about. And it's an especially exciting thing to announce because this is the support of a playwright, a playwright who we've talked about on this podcast. 
Yeah, yes, yes, indeed. I think it was all the way back in, what, season two or three that we it, talked It was it? early, and this uh, separate from this announcement, we are coming back to one of his plays later on, so that, that, that those those two things are not uh, paired together. It's not because <laughs> he's a supporter we're doing his play. It was already on the docket. But we are coming back to another play by playwright David Lindsay Abair. Yes, thank you so much, David, for becoming a patron of the podcast. David has uh, has uh, become a patron at that like producer level or the the playwright level or whatever we called it over there. On, yeah, whatever the levels page. are, that and, yeah. it, it's just so it, it feels so good to have a supporter from the playwriting community, somebody who's a working playwright and the playwright of some really incredible scripts. Of course, we talked about Rabbit Hole on the show, one of the more popular scripts by David Lindsay Bear. But you're going to recognize some of these other ones too. Fuddy Mears is a really popular play. Uh, he, he wrote the book for Shrek the Musical. And then two of his more recent works that I'm particularly fond of, Good People and Ripcord is, I think, a delightful little comedy. I'd love to discuss that sometime. It is a great script. Um, but just a, an awesome playwright for so many reasons. Rabbit Hole is, is so impactful for a lot of people. And we are now impacted by David's generosity in supporting the show. Yeah, th- thank you so much, David, for for your generosity and, and, and engaging with the the community in that way. It means it means a whole lot. And and if y'all are, are looking for ways to help the show out, patreoncom slash podcast is just a really great way to do it. We we have a number of good benefits over there as well, uh, Jacob. We have like early access to scripts as well over yeah, there. Yeah, the that, that's right. About, that's yeah. kind of the main benefit is that we uh, release what scripts we're doing much earlier on to our Patreon patrons. But then we also post uh, semi-regularly about other pieces of art, things that aren't plays, uh, paintings, poems, short stories, that kind of stuff. Um, we'll recommend to that group. We'll write little reflections about them and post those on our Patreon page for supporters. So that, that's another way to engage other pieces of art that aren't theater. Um, artists are artists, and, and we love to appreciate other things that aren't scripts as well. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you're looking for a way to help out the show at whatever tier of membership, the lowest one is at the, just $1 a month level, and that's that's uh, $12 over the course of the year, or the, the, the $5 level, I believe, is the one where we say your name at the beginning of the show, like we said David's today at the top of the show. So uh, if you're looking for a way to be a part of the NoScript community, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and check out what we got going on over there. That would be so great. We're so thankful to all of our supporters, whether you're a famous playwright or not. Your support is so uh, – we're so grateful for it. It is it, it is the thing that allows the show to keep going. I mean certainly one of the major driving factors is that the, the show is expensive and, and we have folks that help us cover the cost of doing it. So thank you to those folks over there. And now we'll move past that into what y'all came here for, I do believe, our discussion on Cost of Living by Martina Mayoke. Yes, we are going to jump back into the script here with some context and synopsis. I'm going to contextualize the script for you just a little bit so you know some of the kind of theater history around the play. Uh, Cost of Living was a 2016 play written by Martina Mayoke, um, and it premiered in Williamstown in Massachusetts, but then had the 2017 premiere off-Broadway. So I guess that's not a premiere, but an off-Broadway showing in 2017. And it was that process that kind of cued it into the Pulitzer Prize for drama in 2018. Um, it num- won a number of other awards that year. Uh, it was up for a, a number of the same awards as uh, Schoolgirls, or the African Mean Girls play, a play we did last season. 
Um, interestingly, the, the play itself was uh, based on another short one act that uh, Martina Mayoke wrote uh, called John, who's from Cambridge. And uh, that concerned one of the couples in the play or one of the pairs in the play that we will uh, continue to talk about. Um, and it was the addition of the other uh, pair in the play that uh, continued the script on to the current script, which is Cost of Living, the, the full the full stage production. Um yeah, since, I mean, it's still a, a very new play, right? Won the Pulitzer in 2018. It's continued to uh, have some productions, uh, but the two main ones, as far as uh, uh, the Broadway scene is concerned, were in the 2016 and 2017 to uh, July of 2017 in the off-Broadway debut. So the script is set in New Jersey. And uh, she describes a number of the characters in different sort of New Jersey ways related to their personalities. The the setting time period, it just says in the near present. Uh, obviously, the script, as Jackson just said, created in 2016. It played 2017, 18, on to now. Like, what the near present means or what that will mean five years from now, I don't really know. But it, <laughs> you can imagine sort of that, that middle 2010 to 2020 time period. There's four characters in the play. This happens in the fall leading up to Christmas. And the play is structured so that it is really two stories which converge at the very end. So I'm going to just describe those stories for you separately um, and then just briefly describe how they converge as I imagine that will end up being the subject of some of our conversation as we go on. The first story and it's so hard to identify one or the other as main because they're both so they they both share equal weight in the play, really. But the first character we meet is Eddie. And he is, uh, it's a monologue. It's in a bar. I think we're meant to, in the staging of it, imagine that nobody else, no other actors are actually around him. And he's just, he's miming another person at the bar with him. And Eddie is telling us a story about how he lost his wife, Ani. And how they used to text back and forth. He's a truck driver, or at least used to be a truck driver. And they would text back and forth while he was on the road. And then once she died, he just continued to text her number. Um, We also learn that he is sober after being alcoholic for a number of years. And that he's really struggling in the wake of the death of his wife with loneliness. He leaves all the lights on his on his apartment all the time as some sort of connection to the, the idea of still being living and still being present. And one day, he gets a text back from the number that used to be his wife's number. Quickly realizes, well, they just gave her number away. Uh, exchanges a few texts with this stranger and they kind of agree to meet at a bar in Brooklyn. Eddie goes to the bar again. He's a a former alcoholic, so he's not drinking. Uh, They agree to meet at the bar, but this person stands Eddie up. And that's kind of the end of the little story about Eddie that we learn uh, at the very beginning of the play in what's called the prologue scene. Now we go back in time in the Eddie Ani story. And we go back to Eddie is entering um, Ani's apartment. And we learn that though they were married and still legally are married in terms of the divorce papers having not been processed and signed and all that, they are separated. Um, But Ani has recently experienced, and, and recently being about six months ago, it's been about six months of fairly active medical recovery from a really terrible accident that le- damaged her spinal cord, left her a quadriplegic, and she is now in a wheelchair. She only has movement in her head and in some of the fingers on her left hand. 
Um, we don't see any equipment that would like be pumping her lungs or, or internal organs or anything like that, but she just she can't move the lower part of her body except for a few fingers. In the videos of productions I've seen, she's in an electric wheelchair that she can drive. Um, so she at least has enough movement in her hand to be able to do that. And Eddie is there at first to collect some stuff that uh, the mover or the nurse or whoever accidentally sent to her apartment that really belonged to him. But in subsequent scenes, he convinces her to let him become her nurse. Even though they were separated, it's strongly implied that he sort of cheated on her, but went once they were separated. So um, it's a little complicated, you know, what wrong he actually did to her. He's not responsible for the accident. And it's, again, implied that it maybe was the result of drunk driving or, or something like that. Um, but she agrees, after much negotiation, to let Eddie become her nurse. And the, the rest of their storyline is Eddie taking care of Ani. He, he bathes her in one scene, um, and she nearly drowns. Uh, and so that, that's their part of the story. Totally separate from them is another couple that's in a caretaking relationship, Jess and John. Unlike Eddie and Ani, who have a high context relationship being married for, it's like 20 years they were married, I think we, we learn in the script. Jess and John are strangers at the beginning of the play. John has cerebral palsy and is hiring the first caretaker that he's like hiring on his own as an, as an adult living on his own now. You, I think it's implied that his parents care took him or hired caretakers but now he's an adult he's living on his own he's a graduate phd student at princeton in new jersey and has hired his own caretaker uh named jess who is sort of down on her luck she's working a bunch of jobs mostly bar jobs just to make ends meet we learn later very much later in the play that she's actually sleeping in her car so she she doesn't even have a real home um and, and so she takes on this job to caretake for john she has to shower him and shave him and get him dressed in the mornings they spark what jess thinks is a a romantic connection he invites her over this is across several scenes in the play he invites her over um one friday night for what it seems to the audience is a date and it seems to jess is a date but when she arrives that friday night it's discovered that he invited her over so that she could get him ready for a date with someone else uh, which is crushing to jess and she runs away And then we get to the, it's called the epilogue scene. And this is the only connection between the two plots in the whole play. Eddie uh, is inviting Jess, again, from these two separate stories. Eddie from the Eddie Ani story and Jess from the Jess and John story. Eddie invites Jess into his apartment because he found her sleeping in her car. It's the same night that she thought she was going to be on a date with John, but it wasn't a date. Uh, And he found her sleeping in her car, so she's still wearing her nice dress and all that. He invites her in, and they... They just sort of talk about the things that they've lost and the situa- the hard situations that are they're in. Eddie is kind of subtly or in an understated way trying to ask her if they wanted to create some kind of I'm going to say relationship, but I don't mean romantic relationship. I mean like partnership where she could also live in this apartment not because they're together in a romantic way, but just because they both need, you know, Eddie doesn't want to be alone. Jess needs a place to stay. Eddie's willing to cover most of the rent. Um, And eventually Jess leaves because Eddie's starting to get kind of, 
he's acting bizarrely, asking her about her phone number. Now we remember back to the beginning of the play, oh, the phone number that belonged to his wife. Um, she leaves, but at the very end of the play, she returns, and she brings uh, cold coffee, and he has old pizza is the final <laughs> beat of the play, and it, the final picture is just the two of them standing in this apartment. It is, it's not clear what the future of that Again, I'll say relationship, but I don't mean romantic relationship. It's not clear what the future of that relationship is, um, but at the moment they are shown together on stage is the last beat of the play. Woo, it takes a while to tell two full stories because it's two full stories in this play. Absolutely. I thought you did a good job. And and especially because this play plays with time so interestingly. Um you, you get the prologue scene, which is essentially the same which is the same time as the last two-ish, three-ish scenes of the play. And then you back up months and months to to kind of get the the background to it feels like the prologue and the epilogue are are kind of the the present moment of the play, but you only spend a fraction, a small fraction of the play in those present moments. Right. And, and and because you live in a world where the first scene we see is from, I don't know whether you'd call it the future or the present, <laughs> right, but right. It's, it's from the more recent time, we learn things that then inform how we understand the scenes that we see from the past or whether the past is the present, who knows, but from the older scenes. Uh, notably, knowing that Ani dies really impacts how you view the Eddie Ani scene. For example, the scene where she slips accidentally, he's bathing her, he goes to get an ashtray because they're smoking, and he, she slips under the water and because she has no movement other than a few fingers, I mean, that could be it. She could drown. And we all know that she's going to die. And there is a moment as you experience that where you go, oh, no. Right. He left her for a few seconds to get an ashtray and she drowned. That's how she died. This is horrible. Oh, my gosh. He's going to suffer the guilt of that forever. Now we understand why he's in such a bad place. The first, oh. And then he comes in and saves her. And that is a way that Martina Mayo surprises you. She tricks you, right? It's a, right. It's a She pays off the experience of knowing Ani's going to die, seeing a moment where Ani almost dies but doesn't. It becomes a genuine surprise. Absolutely. Yeah, it kind of fills that moment with with uh, a lot more pressure, a lot more at stake because we kind of know the backstory and we know the direction it's going. It or, also, the, or the four story. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It also I mean and and you're 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 right to draw attention to the the kind of oddity of Eddie's asking about the phone number in that last scene too. Like that's that's a that's a super soup first of all the situation is super weird, right? You're invited over to someone's house, you know, potentially dangerous. He, he says he's going to give you a blanket or something like that because you look cold. Um, and then he starts asking for your like the the, the digits of your your phone number, at least the first three to try because he's trying. It, it's so great how she's built like the tension and oddity there because they're both suspicious of each other, right? And you can right. imagine being either person in that scene. And understanding that you would also be suspicious, right? Jess is suspicious, like, why is this stranger inviting me into his apartment? What the heck is going to happen here? Meanwhile, Eddie's like, I don't want to let her steal anything. I'm going to show her a picture for my wallet, but I don't want to show her that I've got money in my wallet. <laughs> right, I mean, it's right. a great, you can really imagine being in both situations of that moment and being suspicious, being tense. And yet they both need each other so much in that moment. Um, Eddie really uh, needs... It's like some sort of, we, we find out in the scene that he needs some sort of a connection, 
point um, uh, with someone because of what he's going through. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's talking someone's ear off at the bar when he, he missed out a, a chance to talk to someone that he randomly got a response to on his cell phone because it was the same number as his wife. Um, but, but also, Jess really needs someone in this moment, too, because Jess not only has been working to make ends meet to to uh, supply money to her mom, who is who's going through a sickness, but but she's doing it. She's working all night so that she doesn't have to sleep in her car at night during the freezing cold, like winter months of New Jersey. And so, so to her leaving early from this gig at John's, um, this, well, this, what she thought was a date at John's and, and kind of pushing her out into her car is, is a bit of a first for her. She hasn't really slept overnight in her car before. And it's, and it's like potentially dangerous for her to, to be in that situation. Right. You're so right to, to point out the, the newness of the situation for her, because as it comes up a number of times and it's, it comes up so frequently and in such a, a pointed out way that as a reader or an audience member, I'm a little bit like, why do we keep pointing this out until I learn why? And the, what they're pointing out is that Jess works overnights. She works yeah. late shifts until 4, 5, 6 a.m. at the bars. And it's not until the scene with Eddie at the very end of the play that we learn that she's doing that because she doesn't have a home. And it's safer for her to sleep in her car if she can sleep in the mornings or the early afternoons. It's warmer, first of all, but just safer in terms of strangers and danger and getting robbed. And, and all that kind of stuff. So when she blows off, well, she doesn't blow off. She gets a shift at the bar covered so that she can go on what she thinks is a date with John. It turns out not to be. He's going on a date with somebody else. That leaves her with nowhere to go. So mm-hmm. she she asks John if she can stay in his apartment while he's on the date, uh, and he doesn't. He's not comfortable with that. So now she's in this new situation, and of course that's one of the things that you look for in drama, which is so built into human life. Which is wh- why are we seeing this story now? What's new about this story now? What's happening that we have to be in this moment now? And for Jess, we learn why. Right? She's in a brand new situation. Uh, at the end of the play and a brand new situation at the beginning of the play, taking on a caretaking, uh, a paid caretaking role. Yeah. And, and, and boy, though, isn't just every scene a new situation for these characters? Like almost yeah. every, it, like the, the, the given context of these characters is 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 really low in one in one set and really high in the other. And yet both are going through these these completely new experiences with each other. Uh, you, you know, J- Jess and John have this this completely new and really personal experience of she's prepping him in the morning to uh, he's 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 uh, he has cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair, so he can't like shave in the morning. He can't shower in the morning. So he hires someone to come and take care of him for that. And and she's she's a part of what there's one scene that is essentially just her getting him ready in the morning. And it's, you know, all the way from shave through shower and getting dressed. So it's 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 a new experience for both of them as they learn to trust each other. It's a new experience for Eddie and Annie as well as as they are uh learning to trust each other again after having separated and and her trusting him to take care of her again. Right, yeah, it's it's sort of new circumstances onto an old relationship yeah, for yeah. Eddie and Annie whereas it's a brand new relationship for Jess and John and really that structural method is is kind of one of the core ways that the play is written, right? Is that it's two 
relationships which have some initial things in common but are written drastically differently and about drastically different contexts. Eddie and Ani in a high context uh, marriage or at least separated marriage relationship that's going through new circumstances. Jess and John, strangers that are getting to know each other and then eventually separate at the end of the play. You have that level but they're both caretaking relationships so there's some similarities there. But then even the way that Martina Mayok has written the, the revelation, right? What the audience knows, the dramatic irony is opposite too, right? In the Eddie Ani part of the story, we learn ahead of time how that story is going to end. And so we're always looking for what we know is going to be the ending to come true in that story. Whereas in the Jess and John relationship, we don't learn any of the crucial information about who Jess is, why she's doing what she's doing, the explanation for all these sort of weird things about her life that keep coming up, we don't learn any of that until the Jess and John relationship is over very near the end of the play. So there's an opposite view of revelation and dramatic irony too. Huh. Yeah, it's it's like kind of two passing trains of knowledge that we we get we get more and more of one of the other at, at the other ends of it and and kind of go on this this ride with them throughout throughout the play. Um and and that 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 the way that it's all woven together again via timelines again via the slow reveal of information just provides this this kind of slow journey, this really fascinating journey that you're both both very awake for throughout the whole play, like you're actively trying to figure stuff out. But also, like, I found myself, like, paging back in the reading of the play. Obviously, this wouldn't be able to happen in the watching of a play. But I, I paged back to the prologue the minute I finished the play. Because I was like, wow, now I know stuff that's going to really, you know, affect this prologue. And this prologue cued me up to know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and how the scenes of these two opposite, similar relationship stories are woven together is re- is masterful. Obviously, it won the Pulitzer Prize, so somebody thought it was masterful, and I'm just right, echoing right. them. Uh, you know, wh- one example is the the two sort of interview, caretaking, establishment scenes that come one right after the other, right? You get Jess, who's interviewing for her position uh, as John's caretaker, and this is like scene three or scene two. It's very early in the play. And it's kind of a classic uh, bad interview scene, right? Where it seems like the the person being interviewed uh, maybe doesn't have interview skills or or is um, not not answering questions in the way you would standardly would for a job interview. But because the interviewer is sort of looking for a non-standard uh, answers to the questions that it it actually works out. Like he right, asks her, right. "Why does she want the job?" and she says, "Like uh, for the experience." And, and he and he says, "Why do you want the job?" She says, "Money." He says, right. "Okay, great." So that Good. kind of stuff. And she eventually gets the job. And then we go to the next scene, which is Eddie trying to convince Ani to let him be her caretaker. So it's also. It's not a job interview, but it's really the same power relationship happening, right? Somebody, Jess in one scene, Eddie in the other, trying to convince somebody else, John in one scene, Ani in the other, to let that person be their caretaker, either as a paid job position or as some sort of uh, reconnection, penance kind of uh, marriage relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the, the parallels. And that, that scene is just like so... 
there's there's no holds barred in either one of those scenes as each of these uh these people in need of care are 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 uh in, <laughs> engaging either someone potentially that they want to be their caretaker or someone that they don't seem to really want to be their caretaker there's no like there's 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 just no this is not a um there's just no holds barred. They, they, they tell them that they don't, uh, John tells Jess that she does not want her to refer to him as a differently abled person, that it's, that it's disrespectful and, and, and not actually, uh, honoring of his position to have her talking about him in that way. And both scenes are just at the high context relationship of Ani and Eddie. Like Ani is just kind of brutal to Eddie back and forth. And, and Eddie in turn, there's the scene where Eddie tries to like dance with her. He's trying to play music because music, is therapeutic and uh and uh to to try to help her he's he's read or watched youtube videos about how it helps people recover some of their movement after a, after a spinal injury and so he starts dancing with her and she says at the end of it you still can't dance and he replies neither can you uh, and, and there's so and they both laugh about it there's the there's there's like this this kind of raw energy about both of these uh these scenes that come from two really different places. The first in Jess and John, it's kind of this, just the way they are. They're both kind of abrasive up, up uh, all cards on the table sort of people. And then with Ani and Eddie, it's more of a, a learned relationship. And you, you see the different ways in the two couples that the same kinds of things happen, but with so much different context, like both John and Ani are taking some sort of a significant risk by accepting Jess and Eddie to be their caretaker, but in so much different ways, right? For John, he's accepting somebody who's virtually a stranger. I mean, we see the whole of their interaction from her coming in the door to them agreeing to work together. And it's not like he learns that much about her. Maybe he's a really stellar judge of character, but otherwise he's taking some sort of a risk, right? In accepting this person into his life and home to strip him, to shower him, uh, to put him, put her in, you know, in a position to steal stuff from him, to abuse him. He takes a risk, right? And Ani takes a risk by allowing her ex-husband, who it's implied strongly cheated on her, even though they might have been separated. I'm not sure how it all worked out, but who did her wrong in the past to be her caretaker. There's a significant emotional risk there. Um, now, now I did get, I flipped some of the orders of the early scenes. The, the two interview scenes don't come one right on top of the other, but they're both within the first four scenes. And so there's some really nice contrasting happening. Again, the low context of Jess and John is really nicely contest, contrasted by Eddie and Ani. This is such a great line from the script. I just had to find a way to read it. Um, maybe, maybe for me, the best line of the script, uh, Ani says, they're talking about why Eddie shouldn't be her caretaker. She says, we got too many Trumps on each other, decades of them. I mean, mm -hmm. that is a great line. Wow. Yeah. You could put that as a quote at the beginning of a different script because it's so well, so well written and so powerful. We got too many Trumps on each other. Decades yeah. of them. Well, that's one of the, the, the really powerful things about the Eddie and Ani storyline is that they have they have all these trumps on each other. They have all this baggage that they've brought with them from their relationship before. And it's and it's actively informing and, and working against what. I would think both of them want on some level, right? Like Eddie uh, wants to honor the relationship they had and be there for Ani in this in this this horrible time 
for her. He wants to be a helper. And I think uh, Ani wants that too, but she can't uh, let go of some of the baggage, at least initially, um, that, that she, she, that she's been hurt by Eddie, that, that he, that these real wrongs that he has caused to her. Uh, the, the, the first scene that we meet with them, he's brought her back from the hospital or something like that. They're arriving back home at the same time. They're talking about the, the bags and trying to collect things. And, uh, Eddie's girlfriend, the the woman he's he's about to live with, or the woman he broke up with her for, or che- cheated, whatever whatever version of the Rosses. We were on a break. That was. Um, <laughs> I've t- I've been tempted to say that so many times already this episode. We were on a break. That does seem to be the story that they tell. Is like oh, they yeah. separated, and then Eddie was with this new woman, his new girlfriend. And they're about to move in together into Eddie and Ani's old apartment together. So there's an old hurt, right? The old hurt of we separated and you immediately were with someone new. And a new hurt of and the two of you are about to move into our old apartment together that both come fresh on to needle at Ani throughout the play. Right, right. So it's, it's, the, it's the living with these these trumps, these hurts, these these uh, patterns that they've had for like twenty something years, twenty almost one years, I think is what Eddie Eddie says that they've been together. That now are being reshaped, brought back up after a time of separation and in a moment of of uh, of strife for them of, and of, of need, right? Because that's the other yeah. difference between Eddie Ani and Jess John is that. When Eddie proposes to become Ani's caretaker, she is in somewhat of a position of weakness or of need because the the reason why he has to come over that night is that he has received a call that her nurse is not going to show up, whether she forgot or she got sick or what. We don't know that, but she's not going to be there that night. And that, I mean, that's really bad. Her nurse, like, feeds her, takes care of her, bathes her, brushes her teeth, all that stuff that you need to do. And so that puts Ani in a position of weakness, right? She doesn't have a nurse that night, so Eddie has to come over. And he points out that even if you can hire a new nurse, it's going to take days. So who's going to take care of you in those intermediate days? How are you going to afford a nurse going forward? I'm not really sure you can. And Ani is also not sure she can. She makes some vague references to applying for some money, but no confirmation there. So there's that that need that Eddie can use contrasted to the Jess and John scene where John is set up as a, a very wealthy guy. In fact, I think he says he has the money to do whatever he wants, except for those few things that he can't do, like bathe himself, shave himself, that, that kind of right. stuff. So he is not in a position of need. I mean, he needs a caretaker, but the position he's in is I can hire whoever I want. I've got the money. I'll just hire somebody. Um, yeah. and, and Jess is maybe the one in the position of need in that relationship because she needs the job to have the money to, we learn at the very end of the play, send back to her sick mother um, in, from whatever country she immigrated from. That is actually left up to the ensemble, which is really nice. What mm-hmm. ethnicity, what country uh, Jess's family immigrated from and has moved back to. Yeah, yeah, it's this it's this fascinating uh kind of paradoxical power relationship between John and Jess because Jess has a, has some physical power in in their relationship, but it's John who really carries a lot of the stakes power in their relationship. It's John who has the job that Jess needs to support her 
mom's uh, mom and her sickness. So so you see over and over as the relationship begins to turn in a in a in a direction where it looks like the job is in jeopardy, Jess will adapt. Jess will kind of stop that direction, stop whatever uh, kind of critique she was saying of John to to adapt to John's uh, discomfort with their relationship, and that happens a couple of times uh, through through throughout the interview process and even in later scenes. John continues to bring up, well, you know, you're you, you are hired by me, and when you show up, like it is kind of an interview process uh, as to whether or not this is working out or not. And that is the same feeling you get from the Eddie-Ani relationship too, right? Like she holds all the cards and Eddie better act right and put up or he's out on his ear. And that's interesting because we know that she's in a tough position of needing somebody to take care of her, not really being able to afford it, not really having anybody, at least in the immediate. And yet that is not a card Eddie really plays. He only reveals the information that, well, your nurse didn't really show up. And by the way, I told them I was going to do it. He only plays that Trump card after she's already sort of changed her mind and, and the the conversation is already moving towards, okay, so you're going to be my caretaker. Does he finally say, well, yeah, and you don't actually really have a choice. I mean, after all that, after all the arguing, I really, I have, I have some power here that I didn't show. So despite Ani's mention of trump cards and having decades of trump cards, one that Eddie has that he chooses not to play that does put him in a position of power doesn't really seem to, in in, in the scenes, does not really seem to come up in a way that, that weakens Ani's position. No, I agree. So, somehow their their relationship is is one that uh, that flows pretty pretty uh, fluidly between, uh, and, it, and it is something about Eddie's uh, Eddie's own character traits because you don't just see that sort of unwillingness or, or willingness to set aside uh, a power or uh, a trump card in that relationship. You also see it in his relationship to Jess. Um, when she shows up at his place, he also, he's, he's like very conscious of the weirdness <laughs> to the point that he even, even he's, 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 he's just like kind of stammering out some phrases to try to get her to, to stay in his apartment a little longer. Cause he's so lonely and, and a little afraid, I think of what he's becoming in as he's now alone. Um, and uh, he says something like, "I'm, I'm." He offers her that she that she stay with him, that they that they room together, figure out some way to prorate the rent or like share the rent and and work it out. And he says, "I'm sorry that you're a woman. I mean, I mean, I'm not sorry that you're a woman. I'm just sorry that it's complicated that you're a woman and I'm a guy, and we're trying to figure this out." Um, so he he has this trait about him that is this uh, acknowledgement of the fact that there is a power dynamic, but also a laying down of that power dynamic and just trying to engage honestly with the people he's with. And that's Eddie, isn't it? He He's this interesting character who kind of intentionally puts himself in positions of weakness to try to achieve what exactly? I, I think of the four characters in the play, what exactly Eddie's after is the most unclear of the group. Now, the the present day, or whether you think it's present or future, whatever, the present day Eddie, after Ani has died, is a little more clear, right? He's just super lonely, sees himself skidding downhill. Um, he's worried about go, falling back on the off the wagon um, be, as a result of the, the the just grief and depression at the loss of Ani. So that that's a little more clear why he wants a... a, a 
Jess to move in or at least be around some to help him with that. But why exactly Eddie has gone back to Ani to be her caretaker? I think if you were the actor playing Eddie, that would be maybe the major question or one of the major questions to work on with your director and your ensemble. What does Eddie actually, what is Eddie actually imagining happens at the end of this? Assuming that Ani were to survive, is he imagining that they get married again? Well, he's dating another girl. Right, right. And that, that relationship is, is kind of questionable. Some, some it's at sometimes uh, the, the other, the other woman throughout the course of the play, it's, it's clear that there's some, cl- I think he says there's some clouds forming about whether they're going to stay together or not. Um, I think that's, yeah, I absolutely agree that you need to kind of dig into the character of Eddie if you're playing Eddie to try to figure out why he is back um, after, after a separation, after uh, being with this other woman, what, what it is that has drawn him back. And I, I, I would, I imagine that, that a clear path is that he just, in fact, loves her a lot. <laughs> um, I think the, the, the prologue piece shows that off quite a bit. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the dynamic of him, uh, uh, being on these trucking trips and getting like little texts and him talking about how, how infatuated he is uh, in her through these kind of just check in texts. Um, and also the, the degree to which he's willing to just kind of go like the, the degree that it floors him that he gets a text from her after she's dead, that he's willing to go to a bar in Brooklyn and he has some kind of uh, fun asides about about Brooklyn and how he's he's he kind of judges Brooklyn a little bit um, and, and why he's uncomfortable in this bar. It just He goes to this place that he's uncomfortable to try to connect with her again, even though he knows it's ridiculous because she's she's died. Um, yeah, I think you're right to look at that monologue to help us understand the context of the relationship they had when she was alive because one of the fascinating parts of that monologue is that he does not reveal – he says that she has died and talks about her as his wife, but there's really no mention of them being separated. It's not right. like he's talking about, oh, my wife, we were separated, but I was her caretaker, and then she died. He He's talking about her as if they had this stellar, happy marriage up until however long ago it was that she passed. And, right. and so that is, I think, very revealing as to how Eddie thought about their marriage. Now that she's gone, he, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be the immediate thing on the tip of his tongue that, oh, we were separated. He he thinks about that marriage and that relationship as ongoing in some way. Mm-hmm. And you get, you get a little bit of information from Ani. Uh, she takes some guesses as to why he's there, um, trying to help her, um, trying to be, uh, her nurse. Um, and, and, and I think, I think you do have to make some decisions as to, as to, uh, how clearly she is seeing him in those. Cause they are a little derogatory. Um, they're there that she thinks he's there just to try to earn something back from her or feel well, that, a little bit less. Yeah. That, that's the, that's, I think the, the one that is the most interesting. She, there's all things about whether he needs the money, whether he, you know, is just looking for a way to piss her off or all that kind of stuff. But the, the one that is the most interesting, uh, guess or accusation by 
Ani is that he's there to like do penance, that right. he feels that he wronged her and now he's trying to take care of her to sort of fill a gap in himself. And once he's filled that guilt up and that shame up, he's just going to leave her is, is how she puts it. And that's the most interesting accusation because it seems like the one that maybe dances on something that could be a, an answer for the actor playing Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly that's, you know, that could be a space that he's inhabiting. I think I think it comes there, there there's a there's a pretty good uh there's a scene around that moment where it comes to a head and she really asks him, I, I need to trust for, for us to be back together again. He asks if there's any way that they could be back together again. That's how it's how it's cued. And she says, the only way that I could believe that is to or to have that happen is to believe that you would still be here if this wasn't the case, if I wasn't in need of your help. And he answers um, that he would be. And she answers, I, I don't, like, I need to try to believe that in order for that to happen. And I don't know that I can. And I think that's, the, around there is the locus where you have to decide as Eddie. And you have to decide uh, by the end of the play for Ani, too, uh, as she, she eventually does admit that she needs him and she wants him around. What to, to what level each of them believes that statement, that he would be here even if she were not in so great a need of him. Right. And and some of that is it's sort of lost in the 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 missing information about their relationship that, that right. the audience doesn't have. Right. I mean, we we've, we've sort of joked all episode about trying to figure out were they on a break? Was he cheating? What actually happened that they were separated? How long ago was that? What does it mean that they're separated? We know that they have divorce papers drawn up, but that they haven't signed them. And she's still on his insurance. He was sober for so many years, but also thinks he was faithful. So th- there's a whole mess of a relationship that they have that the audience doesn't have. And, right. and it would be fascinating. I mean, as, as a director, I love to use improv. Uh, you and I worked together on a, a short play that we did a whole bunch of improv on yep. to, to work out the context of the character. And that's something that I love to do. And I think that would be a fascinating ex- uh, uh, exercise in rehearsal for these characters to help build a shared history that can build up helping these characters figure out what are they in this relationship for. And the playwright gives us a clue, I think, about Ani very directly. There's a stage direction that refers to, like, well, this sort of secret longing Ani might have. If Eddie really were here, not just because she needs help and it's sort of a pitying caretaking kind of thing but because he he still loves her still wants to be with her sort of no matter what that that might be something she would be after that she sort of secretly longs for um but i we don't get that same stage direction clue for eddie and it right it, it, i think it's left in a little bit of mystery what is he hoping for at the end of all this mm-hmm I think the the other the other piece of information that kind of adds to the weight of Eddie's just connection to Ani is actually a, a an, an almost imperceptible prop that um, that kind of floats through the play and arrives at the end of the play and it and it's not remarked on in the play it's kind of this this beautiful piece that's there to discover uh, for for a crew and and I think it, it was just in watching a scene that it really connected for me a scene from the the uh, the promotion for the play but it's the blanket that Ani has 
Um, Ani uh, is covered in this blanket through much of the play because she's cold. She's not moving a lot. She needs to keep her temperature up. And he actually covers her with it in their first scene. When he's Mm -hmm. come into her apartment, he's been like standing out in the rain, uh, come over to get his stuff uh, ostensibly. And immediately he comes in and like tries to fluff her pillow, but then lays this blanket on her, which then remains on her, I guess, except for the bath scene through much of the rest Mm -hmm. of the play. Yeah, yeah. But especially in the reading of the play, that's really the only cue you get that this is this blanket is there. But you would see it throughout the play. This is a it's like a at least in the production I saw it was like kind of an Afghan style blanket. And and it's it's brought back. It's the blanket that he gives to Jess at the end of the play to uh, try to keep her warm uh, in the car. It's it's the reason he's invited her to the place was that he was going to give her a blanket and maybe give her some tea so that she could go back to her car and be warmer. Um and and you see him wrestle with giving away this blanket. The blanket shows up. It's it's a it's a distinctive blanket. Uh, he holds it up to her and asks, "Could you could you leave it by the door when you're done with it tomorrow? It's sentimental. It's just it, it's really sentimental. <laughs> Please bring it back." Um, and so so you got you got to cobble together all these little pings, right? These these pings of of relationship, these pings of truth about these characters throughout the whole play. And uh and 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 that's one of the rich things about this play is is the act of of piecing together all of these moments to uh to speak into the lives of these characters and their experience. And then of course just the beautiful juxtaposition of these two stories which tell a similar story about humanity and especially about vulnerability. I mean, th- there's no getting around how clear the fact that there are two bathing scenes in the play is. I mean, the, yeah. the play is so much about vulnerability that in both stories, there are these moments w- where one of the two partners is completely vulnerable um, in terms of physically not having any clothing on, not having any clothing armor on. And in the, it's those same scenes where you see the other person, the caretaker person, uh, laid bare emotionally vulnerable, right? That's the scene where Jess thinks that she's going to be asked on a date and you see her vulnerability pay off in the immediate for her. She gets confidence. I think the playwright uses the word sass as she's sort of excited mm-hmm. about it. And in the Eddie Ani scene, right, that relationship starts to rebuild these tendrils. He's carrying for her. He saves her from drowning, all this stuff. Um, and then both of those relationships go negatively in the immediate aftermath. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 beautiful the way these all these all weave together. We're 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 coming into the last like little section of our podcast, but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about. You brought up the uh, casting notes at the top of the play and the kind of freedom that the casting uh, or the 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 the. Uh, the uh, creative liberty that the that the play uh, the the casting notes of the play give give the ensemble at the start of it. There's also some really good limiting notes at the beginning as well, and they are that the playwright asks that uh, the the production cast disabled actors in the roles of John and Ani. Um, I, and that's that's one of the big deals about this play. It's one of the big impacts that this play had uh, on it on both of its productions in 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 uh, or and certainly in the off Broadway production is the fact that both John and Ani were played by actors with disabilities. Um, and and the the fact that this play put sentence put center stage these these folks and their experiences um, is is a really important part of this play and an and active storytelling from a, a community of folks that are not often represented on stage. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important that she says it at the beginning, and I I hope that these theater companies that are producing this really lovely script are do that and, and honor the request of the playwright in casting those characters, and, and especially because, again, for me, the play is at its core just a play about vulnerability in humanity. It's important that for two of the actors, the vulnerability is not a faux vulnerability, right? That there's character vulnerability that you build and imagine, and then there's physical vulnerability that to, to fake would probably undermine and cheat the plays in some way. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's an honesty of expression in those, um, and 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 yeah, it's just uh, I think of the 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 the. the the stage directions for John as he comes on there, there's something to the effect of he is in a wheel, uh, a wheelchair. He is, has cerebral palsy and he is beautiful. Um, and, and, and multiple times the stage directions say he is, he is a beautiful person. Um, I, I think that that's, that's, that's something that can be carried by folks with disabilities onto the stage. And it's important that, that folks, that, that dis- people with, with disabilities and their bodies be represented on stage well and, and in, in plays like this. I, I want to bring up one more note that she gives at the beginning. I'm just going to read it because it's so delightful. I am going to swear. Uh, so if you prefer to skip ahead 30 seconds, What's you can do in? that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but this is, this is just a delightful note at the beginning. And it, it plays out throughout the script. Um, so this is what she says. For the Jersey mouth... The word fucking is often used as a comma or as a vocalized pause, akin to the word like. She gives the example, I can't like decide, you know, is akin to I can't fucking decide, you know. It's a word with extra purpose. It's not necessarily just a container for anger. I I love that note. I love the reflection on the different ways that people swear and, and why they swear. And for the characters in her play, especially for some of the characters where she really puts an emphasis on their Jersey roots, they're, they're use of the the F word is going to be different than characters who have moved from uh, across the country or across the world to be located where they are now. Right. A different vernacular, a, a kind of uh, spoke, yeah, spoken vernacular and a truth about a community that is re- represented well within the pages of the script. The, the, yeah, the, the way that the, that the whole play is set up um, and, and kind of paid off as a result of these, these notes on casting and notes on situation really, really bring it all together and knit a cohesive whole out of it. And I just, I mean, as a, as a director and a playwright, I, I write some plays on my own. I'm, I'm always fascinated by why different people use different words, right? Or, or swear words in this case. They just mean different things to different people. And right, yeah. she, she, I think, imagines and or, or at least was hopeful to imagine at the time that the plays would be produced all over the country. And so if you go to a uh, small town Minnesota or wherever uh, <laughs> and people are, you know, that you want the actors, the cast, the ensemble, the company, hopefully the audience to understand that the, the way that these characters from Jersey use language is going to be different than the way you do. And so don't infuse the F word or whatever with anger, which you might in every situation. Right. <laughs> uh, look for the different subtext to the way the same text is used. Yes. I think I think that's that's about all the time that we have 
for the podcast. Uh, boy, what a great play. I'm excited we got to talk about it. And I would love to keep having this conversation with all of you all out there in podcast land, as is the case in every one of our seasons. But certainly in, in this upcoming seasons, we would love to keep having conversations about all the plays that we do with all of you who have listened to the podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. If you find us on any of those sites, we'd love to keep talking about the play. We'd love the back and forth. Of, of having more perspectives because they bring you know they bring in other great voices to the conversation and bring in perspectives that we might miss. We very probably have missed perspectives in, in our conversation. Undoubtedly. <laughs> Almost Especially undoubtedly. in a play like this, which is about people who do not look like us for the most part. So absolutely we'll have our shared experience. So please, please bring in your perspective uh, and bring in the perspective of your friends and family too. If you want to recommend the podcast, we would love for you to do that. It's a great way to support the show. You can send them to Podbean, which is where our podcast is hosted. But we also publish the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts as well as we just link to it every Monday when the episodes come out on Facebook so you can connect to us that way and get a link to the show. We're thrilled to be at the beginning of another season. I mean, we got a whole yeah. season of content, of discussions, of scripts coming at you. So get ready. Yep, strap in. It's going to be a good season. Until next week when we are talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll see us.